good to see you guys this weekend. Good to see my favorite teenagers always down here listening with their Bibles open. But it's good to see all of you guys. Uh, last weekend, I challenged us. We sent our campus in Haiti $100,000. We said we'd love for you to give in a way that we can replenish the account because we had not uh, planned on that and we hadn't budgeted. And I just want you to know that last week, our hope uh, family gave $136,000. And so uh, we're excited about that. And I want to thank you for your generosity. That means we have an extra $36,000 to sit down there because they can definitely use it. A lot of devastation. But not only in Haiti, uh, there's been a lot of devastation right here at home, especially down east. And so we are partnering with the church in Kinston, and we actually have some pictures that have been sent to us from there. And they're not asking for money, but they desperately need things that they can distribute throughout the community. So as you're leaving this weekend at all of our campuses, you're going to get a little, little card like this, and it has some things that they need. Uh, we have somebody in our church who has a warehouse and a semi, and he's going to make sure that it is all delivered to Kinston. So as you're leaving, if you could bring those things back next week, I'd love to fill out that warehouse, maybe take two or three trips to get it all down there, but we can minister to our own community right here just east of us. It's just part of being hope where you are. Now, we're in a series that we are calling Hope Where You Are, and we've been asking this question. God, if we could get our, if we could get our values, if we could get our priorities to line up with your values and your priorities... God, what would you like to use me to do? What would you like to use me to accomplish? God, who would you like to use me to reach? And I was thinking this week, isn't it strange that as Christians, with a God as big as our God and with a God as powerful as our God, that we don't ask that question more often? Isn't it strange as Christians, with a God as big as our God, a God as powerful as our God, that we don't just naturally think in those terms on a daily basis? And isn't it strange with, with, with a God as big as our God, with a God as powerful as our God, that we don't have a clear vision of what God wants to do through us and the lives of the people around us. I mean, isn't it just strange as Christians, with a God as big as our God and a God as powerful as our God, as we saw last weekend, that we don't just naturally get up every day and when our, he, our feet hit the floor, why, why don't we naturally think, God, what is it you want to do through me today? What do you want me to accomplish? God, who is it that you want me to reach? Who in my sphere of influence would you like me to impact today? Well, that's what we've been talking about in this series. We've been addressing how do we position ourselves in, in such a way that God gets maximum usefulness out of our lives. By the way, let me just say this. If you'll just focus on making yourself useful, you will never have to pray, God, use me. Because God's problem isn't finding people who are willing to be used. God's problem is finding people who are willing to be made usable. See, that's why it's a level playing field. If we're just willing, God can make us Usable. So we've been exploring the question, what is God looking for in our lives that positions us to be used by him? And we've been basing it on a little verse that's found in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 17. Uh, verse 7, man, uh, God doesn't look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. In other words, when mankind and our system, our world system, when, when we look for things, when we look for the criteria that someone's going to be used greatly, we want to know what kind of family they came from, what kind of school they attended, what kind of jobs they've held. What kind of titles and positions? What kind of boards have they set? Those are the kinds of things that impress us in the world system. God says, those aren't the things that necessarily impress me. The things that I'm looking for, these are heart issues. And we saw the first week that God is looking for people. You got to have an available heart. 
And then he's looking for people with a pure heart, which means not a sinless heart or a perfect heart, but an unmixed heart, a heart that aligns with the heart of God. And then we saw in the life of Daniel that God is looking for people who have an obedient heart, who are going to stand on the scriptures, be true to what God has called us to do, regardless of what society thinks, regardless of what culture thinks, regardless of what is politically correct. We're going to be obedient, and we're going to follow God's word. Then we saw in the life of Elisha, That we don't have to know everything to take that next step. We saw in the life of Ehud that God can use us even with our infirmities, even with our disabilities, if we're just available to him. Last week we saw with the David and David taking on Goliath that God's looking for people who have a heart that sees as he sees. In other words, as God begins to nudge us that there's certain things that he wants us to do or there's certain people that he wants us to reach. We're sensitive to the fact that God is moving us. But as we encounter the obstacles, God wants us to see those obstacles as opportunities for him to show up in our lives and for his power to be displayed. Now this weekend, we're going to see that God uses men and women and students that have an eternal perspective. In other words, God is looking for people who are able to look beyond this life and then they are willing to make the necessary adjustments in this life in light of what they know is to come in the future. You got to have an eternal perspective. It's hard for us because we get 60, 70, 80, 90. Maybe as we heard in that song, we get a hundred years. What if we have a hundred years? It goes by so quickly. James says it's like a vapor. It appears and it's gone. But we try to pack everything in between those bookends of of, of birth and death, don't we? I mean, we got to live in our dream house, take our dream vacation, drive our dream car, fulfill all of our bucket lists. We have, because we think when, when it's done, it's done. But what we're going to see this weekend is that's not true. That life is really nothing more than the warm-up act for all eternity. And what we do in this life that God has given us will determine how we spend, not 60, 70, 80, 90 years. It will determine how we spend our entire eternity. Now, Jesus talked about this in Luke chapter 19 the parable of the mina. But what's interesting is this comes right on the heels of Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus. Remember Zacchaeus, the wee little man, the wee little man was he, right? But he wasn't just a wee little man. He was actually a tax collector, which meant he was a Jew taking taxes from the Jews, giving it to Rome, and in the process, skimming some money off the top for himself so that he could live a very, very lavish uh, lifestyle. Now, you got to understand, from a Jew's perspective, they saw him as a traitor, They saw him as a sellout. The Jews absolutely hated Jews who were tax collectors and they were giving the money to Rome. But here we have the story about Zacchaeus, the wee little man, who heard that Jesus was going to pass by. So he climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. How many of you grew up in Sunday school? Yeah. And as the Savior passed that way, remember, he looked up in the tree and he said, Zacchaeus, what? You come down. See, those Catholics are like, what? I never heard this story in my life. Anyway, Zacchaeus, you, you come down for I'm going to your house today. Great little song, great little story. And Jesus goes home with Zacchaeus. And, of course, the crowds that are following Jesus, they're all upset. Why would Jesus go home with this guy? This guy's a loser. He's a tax collector. But what's interesting, we don't know what happened in that house. But you read in, in Luke chapter 19, verse 8, Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, Here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. You think there's been a change? There's been a radical change in his life. 
a radical transformation in the life of Zacchaeus. But then Jesus makes a statement, and I think the crowd heard this statement, and it explained why he tells the next parable. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to your house. Now understand, anytime Jesus talked about salvation, especially if he said, today salvation has come, the crowds that were following him, they are all jacked up, all excited, all worked up. I mean, they're going to run to Jerusalem. They're going to tell everybody that Jesus is getting ready to establish his kingdom. And it's because most of the people that followed Jesus at this time. They were following him not because they thought he was the Messiah, not because they thought he was going to be the Lord and Savior of the world. They were following him because they expected him to establish an earthly kingdom at any moment, and they wanted to make sure that when he set up that earthly kingdom, they were going to be a part of that kingdom. In other words, they were waiting for him to overthrow the Romans, run the Romans out of Israel, and then take the throne as the king of Israel. From their perspective, forget eternity. It's about me, and it's about right now. In fact, these followers suffered from the very same thing that we have a tendency to suffer from. They were so focused on this world. They were so focused on this life. See, Jesus knew that in order for them to be able to make the impact that he needed them to make once he was gone, that they were going to have to learn to measure their lives in light of the big picture. They were going to have to learn to live their lives in light of the picture of eternity. And it's because Jesus knew that in just a few days, he's going to be leaving. I mean, we're at Luke chapter 19. We're just a few chapters away from the crucifixion. And then Jesus is going to be buried in a borrowed tomb. Three days later, he's going to rise from the dead. He's going to spend a few weeks with his followers, and then he's going to ascend back to, to ascend back to heaven. But when he left, he was going to give his followers the responsibility of carrying the torch of the gospel, carrying his message throughout the world, keeping the dream alive. And Jesus knew that if these guys were going to be able to live their lives, if they were going to, they, and, and make decisions in light of eternity, in other words, they had to be able to see the big picture. And if they couldn't, he knew that the mission of this church that he was going to establish, he knew that it was going to be short-lived. And so he needed his followers to understand that the end of this life isn't really the end. The end of this life is really just the beginning. It's just a warm-up act for the big show. And so he told him a parable. Let me just read it to you. I'll try to fill in the blanks as we go. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because here it is. He was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. See, they were getting all, all worked up. He said, calm down, guys. A man of noble birth. Now, understand in this parable, that is a reference to Jesus himself. So Jesus is actually telling a parable about himself. A man of noble birth went to a distant country. So Jesus is talking about that time in his existence when he left all the splendor of heaven as, as Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, took on the form of a man. We know he actually became an embryo in Mary's womb, that little teenage Jewish girl. So he came to this earth, he came to a distant country to have himself pointed as king and then to return. In other words, Jesus was coming to be the savior of the world and then he was going to go back to the father. So he called 10 of his servants. Now, these servants, they would be us. They would be followers of Jesus and he gave them 10 minas. Now, a mina in that day was equivalent to about three months salary. So 10 of them would be equivalent to about two and a half years of salary, a significant amount of money. You can figure out what it would be in your life. I can figure out what it would be in my life. But he gave them a significant amount of money. And he said, this is what I want you to do. Put this money to work. And it's interesting, that little phrase there in the Greek literally means go trade it, go invest it. It's a business term that you would use in the first century. 
So he says, I'm going to give you this sum of money, and I want you to go invest it. And then he says, until I come back. In other words, I'm going to leave, I'm going to return. In that period of time while I am gone, until I return, I want you to invest it. Now, understand, this is not the servant's money. It's the master's money, right? So you get to verse 14, <clears throat> but his subjects hated him, and they sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. Now, this, this is a reference to the Jewish leadership in the first century who didn't acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah. They didn't want him to be the king of Israel, but notice he was made king anyway. God's plan is going to go forward, right? And he returned home. He ascended back to heaven. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. Now, understand, after a period of time, after they've had a chance to invest it, this is Jesus saying, one day I am going to return to this earth. And when I return to this earth, my followers, those of us who are Christians, we're going to stand before him and we're going to give an account of how we lived our lives, how we invested our lives for his kingdom. This has nothing to do whether or not we're going to get, again, we're going to get into heaven or not. That's already decided the moment that we accept God's free gift of salvation made possible through Jesus Christ. This is to hold us accountable and then reward us accordingly based on how we lived our lives for the kingdom of God. So it tells us that he, the first one came and said, sir, your mina has earned 10 more. So he says, while you were gone, I invested what you gave me, a thousand percent return on investment. And he says, well done, my good servant, the master replied, because you've been trustworthy in a small matter, take charge of 10 cities. So understand the reward on the investment is incredibly disproportionate. Yeah, he had two and a half years worth of salary to invest, but because he was faithful with it and multiplied it a thousand percent, he's going to get to oversee, be the mayor, the governor over 10 cities. Very disproportionate. The second came and said, sir, your mina has earned five more. So 500% return on investment. His master answered, you take charge of five cities. Again, incredibly disproportionate. Then another servant came and said, sir, here is, a, here is your mina. I kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. Now, again, let me just point out. He didn't go to Las Vegas and blow it on the slot machines, right? He didn't waste it on prostitutes. He didn't party his life away and spend it on drugs and alcohol. He just hid it. Maybe just put it in his sock drawer. Now, why would he do that? Well, he gives us the answer. He says, I did it because I was afraid of you. I hid it because I was afraid of you. Because you are a hard man. And the Greek word is an exacting man. That's literally what it means. But, it, but it's this idea of you're demanding. You, you, you have high expectations. With you, there's going to be this high level of accountability. And I was afraid that if I took the mina and I tried to invest it and I lost it and I had nothing to return, I didn't know what you were going to do. Maybe you were going to make me repay it. Maybe you were going to get me thrown in jail. I didn't know, so I decided not to do anything with it. I just hid it. And then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. I think this is interesting. Sir, they said, he already has 10. And I think what they're thinking, give it to the guy who has five. And then he'll at least have six and it'll be more even. See, but see, Jesus wasn't into wealth redistribution whatsoever, not in the first century. He said, take it away and give it to the one who already has 10. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. Now, what was the point that Jesus was trying to make by telling his followers this story? His point of the parable was this. He was trying to explain to his audience who were standing there that day and indirectly us who are looking at this passage this weekend 
that for those of us who are Christians, we've accepted the free gift of salvation. We are followers of Jesus. He wants us to understand we will one day stand before Jesus. There will be a day of reckoning as to how we used our lives, how we invested our lives for the kingdom of God. And as his followers, just like the servants in the parable, you'll notice we've been given five things. Number one, we've been given something to invest. Number two, we've been given the responsibility to invest it. Number three, we've been given some time to invest it. Number four, we've been given the promise of his return. And when he returns, there's going to be a day of reckoning. And then number five, we've been given the promise of disproportionate rewards if we are faithful with what God gives us in this life. But I want you to understand, not only have we been given something to invest, we've been given clear instructions as to how to invest it. Because the Bible clearly teaches that we are to invest in people because God's agenda is people. As we said the first week, people are not a means to an end. People are the end. I'm glad we can build buildings, but it's not about buildings. They're just a means to an end. Change lives with people. I'm glad we run great programs here at Hope at all of our campuses, but it's not about programs. Programs are just a means to the end. At the end of the day, it's all about people. And God has given us some stuff to invest in people. And one day, as Christians, we're going to stand before him, and he's going to hold us accountable for how we did with what he gave us. Now, I've been doing this a long time. All right, 30, 36 years I've been a pastor. Here's my fear. This is what I'm afraid of. I am afraid that most of us, let's just be honest, we are a church, we can be honest, most of us take the stuff that God has given us to invest in other people. And let's be honest, what do we do with it? We invest it in ourselves. Or maybe we decide, I think I'm just going to hang on to it because you never know I may need it one day, right? In other words, this, this fear of what if I invest in the kingdom of God and something happens? What if I lose my job? What if after the election, the stock market tanks? What, if the, what happens to the economy? We don't know. So, so we think, I just better hang on to what I've got. I better be responsible just in case. By the way, that's what the problem was for the wicked servant. It wasn't that he lost it. It was that he just held on to it. He did nothing with what he was given. Why? Verse 21 says, very simple, he was afraid. What was he afraid of? The unknown. He was afraid of all the what ifs of life. And here's the problem. The problem was his fear of the unknown drove him to ignore what was known. And what was known is this. One day, the king was going to return, and the king was going to hold him accountable for what he did with the king's stuff. And I believe that Jesus' point of this parable is very, very simple to me and to you. It is silly. It is ridiculous for us as followers of Jesus Christ because of our fear of the unknown to miss out on what is known. And what, we're, what is known is this, that we're going to give an account of our lives. Now, let me just say this just in case you didn't know it. The same Jesus that's changed your life by dying on the cross and three days later rising from the dead, the very same Jesus that forgave you of your sin, the very same Jesus that 
decided to take you on as a project and is in the process of changing your character. You got to understand that very same guy, that very same Jesus said, I am coming and back. And when I return, we are going to have some one-on-one time together. And I can promise you this, when he returns, when we stand before him, for sure he is going to ask us, what did you do with my stuff? What did you do with the time I gave you? What did you do with the treasure I gave you? What did you do with the talent that I gave you? So understand, just as sure as Jesus came that first time 2,000 years ago as a baby in Bethlehem, understand he is coming the second time. And I know it seems realistic. I know he's been away a long time. But the fact is this. If we're going to base our eternity on Jesus' first coming, then as followers of Jesus Christ, we had better be prepared for his second coming. And when he returns, I know that I'm going to give an account of how I live my life. Now, let me just say this. There are a lot of things I don't know. There are a lot of things I can't predict. Laura, for example. I cannot predict Laura, right? But I'll give you something. For example, I don't know what's going to happen to the economy after the election. I don't know what's going to happen to the stock market after the election. But this is what I do know. I do know I'm going to give an account of my life to Jesus. I don't know about opportunities that may or may not come my way in this life. But I do know... I do know that I'm going to give an account of my life to Jesus. I don't know what relationships I might miss out on because I decided to follow Jesus and and I decided to live my life with an eternal perspective. I don't know what fun I'm going to miss out on. I don't know what experiences I'm going to miss out on. But I do know, I do know this. I do know that I will give an account of my life to Jesus. And he's going to want to know, Mike, what'd you do with my stuff? What'd you do with the time I gave you? The treasure I gave you? The talent I gave you? How has my kingdom benefited because of what I entrusted to you? So I would be an idiot. I would be a fool as a follower of Jesus Christ to live my life based on what might happen when Jesus has made it very, very, very clear what is actually going to happen. Just a matter of time. So here's my big question this weekend. Are you living your life? Am I living, are we living our lives with that sense of urgency. Let me just give you an example. Is there anybody in your life, other than your family, family doesn't count, is there anybody in your life that you're investing in just for that person's sake? No ulterior motive? Not just trying to get in their good graces because it may get you a better job or may get you more income? You don't just hang out with them because you're trying to trick them into working for you and sell Amway? None of that stuff, no strings attached? Anybody you're investing in? Anybody that you're mentoring? Anybody that you're discipling? You say, Mike, I'm a brand new Christian. Well, is there anybody that you're serving? Because even if you're a brand new Christian serving other people, that doesn't start after you've been a Christian five or ten. I mean, it starts immediately. It starts the next day. So are you serving anybody? I mean, if you can't think of a person that you are somehow impacting for the kingdom of God then you are not investing your life. You're actually spending your life. And it's interesting, the same Greek word in the New Testament for spending is also translated wasting. If you're not investing in people for the kingdom of God, you are wasting your life. Let me tell you, this life is not an investment. 
This life is like investing in a company that you know ahead of time they're going to go out of business. Sure, you may get paid a dividend here and there, but eventually you're going to lose all your investment. Eventually you're going to lose all of your capital. It's going to go belly up. It is just a matter of time. And that's what it's like to invest solely in this life. You only get so much time. Even if you get 100 years, eventually, you know what? It's going to go belly up. You're going to die. And the statistics on death are quite impressive. One out of one. One out of one people die, right? And so see, the challenge that Jesus calls us to it's like, why are you wasting your time? Invest your, t- invest your time, invest your treasure, invest your talent in the kingdom. And here's the promise. If we do that, when we stand before him, he is going to reward us more. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He is going to reward us more than we could ever imagine. And we know, as Christians, we know that. But some of you absolutely cannot live your life this way because you are so afraid of the unknown. And wouldn't it be a shame, I mean, wouldn't it be a shame to get to the end of your life and to discover that your fear, your fear kept you from reaching your full kingdom potential. I'm telling you, there's more to this life than just living and working and trying to make it through today until eventually you die. Let's be honest, if if that's all there is to this life, you ought to be depressed. If that's all there is to this life, you ought to be disgusted. If that's all there is to this life and you drink, you should probably drink more. You know what I'm saying, right? But here's the good news. Jesus Christ came to give us what? Life. He came to give us life and he came to give it more what? Abundantly. In other words, he has given us the opportunity to live our lives right now. We don't have to wait. To, he's, he's given us the opportunity right now to live our lives with incredible meaning and purpose. And to allow the fear of what we don't know to sidetrack us from what we do know, it's a tragedy. And we end up the losers. And that's why the people that God uses greatly in his kingdom... There are people who are able to see beyond this life. And they're able, here's the tough part, they're able to adjust the here and now in light of what they know is to come in the future. And I'll just warn you a little ahead of time. If you live this way, you'll, you'll look a little weird. You'll give a little more than people who aren't believers, you know, think is reasonable. I was talking to somebody this week and he, he knew about the new building. He lives in my neighborhood. And he says, how do you guys build something like that? Where do you get the money? I'm like, we just ask people to give. Really? They give? Yeah. How do they do that? We just make adjustments, say no to some things. You know what the big deal in my neighborhood is? People buy golf carts. They spend thousands of dollars on golf carts that they can't take on the golf course. They just ride them around the neighborhood. I'm like, what's wrong with you people? And they keep asking me, well, why aren't you getting a golf cart? I got a truck. I got a truck. I can run over your golf cart. I don't, I, don't need, I don't need your golf cart, right? We say no to some things. We make some adjustments. They're like, wow, that's interesting. I said, this will really blow your mind. Last week, I encouraged our people to give $100,000 to help people in Haiti. So they gave $136,000. He said, at church? Yeah. How do they do that? Make adjustments. 
say no to some things. Maybe our priorities. He looked at me like I had three heads, right? right? You live this way, you'll make an adjustment to your retirement. You ought to see me when I sit down with my financial advisor. So when do you guys want to retire? I don't know. What do you want to do? I don't know. Where do you want to live? Never thought about it. You never thought about it? No, why not? Can't find retirement in the Bible. I'll just preach till I die. I'll mount my mule and slowly ride away. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I'll live at the church. I gave my life there. I got a bed in my, I got a couch in my office, a TV and a shower. What else? I mean, what else do I need, right? You know, they'll look at you differently. You'll spend more time serving than other people do. And you'll do other things other people just don't do. And they'll, they'll look at you a little bit. You won't get, maybe get to play golf as much. A lot of people can't serve. Like, man, I play golf on the weekend. I don't have time to serve. Yeah, you, you may have to say no to some things. You may not be able to spend all your time on yourself. And to an unbeliever, you'll look strange, and maybe it won't make sense. But for those of us who know that there is an eternity, for those of us who know there's an eternal God, for those of us who know that we have a Savior who died for our sins, and one day we're going to stand before him and give account of our lives, I'm telling you, Making these kinds of adjustments is just the most sensible thing that we could possibly do. And that's what God is looking for. He's just simply looking for people who are willing to look beyond this life and make adjustments in this life in light of what we know as Christians is to come. Now, let me just say this. If you're here this weekend at any of our campuses and you're not a believer, I want you to know there is a God who is head over hills in love with you. And there is an eternity and God wants nothing more than for you to spend all eternity with him. But you know what? He gives you free choice. You get to decide whether or not you want to be in a relationship with God so you can spend all eternity with him. But I do want you to know this. The Bible teaches, if you don't believe Bible, that's fine. But the Bible teaches that not only is there a heaven, there is also a hell. And I, I don't talk about hell very much because it's just too depressing. In fact, if Jesus didn't teach that there was a hell, I wouldn't even believe it. But he does. And the Bible teaches you're going to spend eternity somewhere. It's either going to be heaven or it's going to be hell. So my guess is your takeaway from this message is that you need to trust Jesus as your Savior. You need to accept the free gift of salvation that was made possible when Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood for your sin, to pay for your sin Three days later rose again to verify and validate that he was indeed the son of God who could take away your sins, who could take away the sins of the world. And he offers it as a free gift. And if you were to die this weekend, accepting that free gift, you would spend all eternity in heaven with God. But if you live and you make that decision, beginning today, you can invest your life in something that truly lasts beyond this life, has eternal dividends. Now, to reinforce this truth as an object lesson, this weekend we decided once again, about every two or three years we do this to relaunch the Minor Project. So we're gonna do that beginning this weekend. I'm so excited, all of our campuses, if you are 18 or over, stand up. Come on, 18 or over, this is not gonna hurt. We're not gonna take your wallet. We're actually gonna surprise you. Okay, just stand up. Just everybody stand up. Look, everybody's scared to death. There's trembling, but this is okay. This is okay. Now, 
you're going to get an envelope. And when you get an envelope, don't open it, but just sit down when you get it. And that way we'll know that you've got one. So you get an envelope, just sit down. And uh, let me just give you some instructions. First of all, in that envelope is some money. It's anywhere from five to $100, okay? We're giving out $100,000 across our campuses this weekend. So there's five to $100. Once you get it, just sit down. You don't need to open it. Now, here's a few instructions about that money. Don't spend it on yourself, okay? Second, prayerfully invest the money in a way that's going to yield the best results. Just like we just discovered in the parable of the miner. We would encourage you, don't try to do it by yourself. Find some people that you can partner with. Maybe you have neighbors who go to Hope. Maybe you have coworkers who go to Hope. Uh, maybe you're in a small group. Maybe someone invited you this weekend. But get together with them, see how much money you've got, and see what you can do. A few years ago, Laura and I, I get five bucks every year. God doesn't trust me with snot. I'll tell you that right now. But anyway, I just know it's going to be five bucks. I don't even have to look. But anyway... With our neighbors, we had 80 bucks, and we decided we were going to rebuild the mailboxes in our neighborhoods. The posts were getting kind of leaning, and they looked kind of rough. So we just we, we used our money. We printed up flyers. We bought a few materials, and we said, for 100 bucks, we'll replace the post. We'll put a new mailbox on. And so uh, Doug built them. I painted them and put them in. I put the mailbox back on. And then we'd, we'd get money, and we'd go buy more supplies. And in a few weeks, we took our $80, and finally we, we maxed out. And we had made a profit of $2,400 we were, we were able to give to, to, to a, a special need in our community. You can go to the Get Hope app. There are ideas on there. If you can't get an idea, you could buy stuff and sell cookies. And as you sell them, buy more stuff and sell more cookies. But we want you to see how much you can multiply whatever you have. And you can go with other people. And then here's the deal. By Christmas, I want you to identify a need in our community. And I want you to give your money to it. It could be a single mom with children who's not going to have a Christmas. It could be somebody that's sick and out of work. It could be somebody that's between jobs. It could be a charity that's really making a difference. But based on our past, I really believe that the $100,000 we gave you this weekend, we will multiply that to a million dollars before Christmas. And people in our community are going to experience your hard work and your generosity. And it's going to bless your life because you're going to see how God is faithful. And it's going to bless the lives of the people in our community. Now, I'm excited about this. And, uh, but remember, this is not yours. It's not your money, okay? Don't go to Taco Bell right after church, okay? It's not your money. It's actually God's money because the money we're giving you, it's money people have given to hope. What they've really done is they've given it to God. And so we're gonna give it back to you. We're giving you God's money. And you, right now, some of you, you don't want to do this. In fact, you're thinking, how do I give this money back? How do I give this money back? You, in fact, some of you are going to go to the offering box, right? Wicked. Wicked. <laughs> I'll tell you right now, you're wicked. Don't do that. You're thinking, nah, this is a lot of pressure. A lot of pressure. Right? It is. But guess what? As Christians, that's the pressure we should feel every day when we get out of bed. And realize God's given us a little bit of time. A little bit of money, a little bit of talent, and a little bit of an opportunity in this thing called life to make a difference in his kingdom. I can't wait to see what God is going to do. You can also go to the Get Hope app, and there's a place where as you, your story begins to unfold, you can actually send us your story, and we'll make it public so other people can be encouraged by what you're doing. And I think it's going to absolutely be incredible. I can't wait to see what God's going to do through you, for the kingdom in our community. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your goodness. 
Thank you for the fact that how you so bountifully give to us. And you've told us so many times, you don't need to worry about food. You don't need to worry about clothes. Look at the birds of the air and the flowers. God, you know what our needs are. You know that we have to retire someday. You know that we have to send our kids to college. You know that we have to pay a mortgage. You know, the, you know those things. You're not telling us to, to give everything away and go, go live in the cave somewhere. But you're asking, what are we doing? Are we doing anything? Are we investing in people for your kingdom? May this object lesson, one, may it bless our community. But two, may it remind us every day, every day, we're determining our eternity. But not only our eternity, how we invest in people will determine where they spend eternity. And Father, by getting this eternal perspective, may you use us greatly. In your name we pray, amen.